Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, mm. as we do every week with all sorts of folks who have touched the NBA. Today, it's 13-year pro, the 37th overall pick in 97 by the Golden State Warriors, coming out of Temple, where he was the Atlantic 10 Player of the Year in 1997, an all-rookie first-team selection in 2001, then spent seven years in the NBA, started overseas, ended overseas, and now he's a Sixers studio analyst for NBC Sports Philadelphia, also runs the AAU program Team Jacko. He's Mark Jackson, one of the prides of Philadelphia. So, Mark, what was a typical day growing up, being a teenager, playing basketball in Philadelphia like? <laughs> well, as you know, uh, Noah, basketball is, is everything in, uh, to everyone in the city of Philadelphia. So growing up in Philadelphia, Noah, you know, you get up, you go to school at school, you come back, you'll go find a pickup game to play. Then you go home and do your homework. Then after that, then you go back and play some more. So, you know, playing in the city of Philadelphia was a lot of great players, a lot of great athletes. You know, it was help, it helped me develop not just a feel for the game, but develop a lot of contacts and good rapport with a lot of different people from all over. When you talk about some of the guys that you played with, uh, one of the most notable, obviously, is is Kobe Bryant. And I know you you first got a chance to to see Kobe play when he was 12 years old. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, when Kobe first came back from Italy, when his parents retired, when his father retired from basketball, um, he came back and it was it's funny. He went straight from the plane. And we have a league in Philadelphia called the Sunny Hill League. And mm-hmm. I just happened to be playing that day. And he comes in the gym, his mom, his dad, his grandfather, um, his sisters. And they just come watch the games. And, and his dad, Joel Bryant, was real good friends with Sunny Hill. And he just talked. And he said, hey, and we was done with the games. But I was study working out. So he's like, hey, can I work out with you? And we worked out for another two, three hours after that while the league was done with. What about after that workout? Well, after that workout, we became good friends and continued to work out together. And um, it was just – and he's, he's a few years old, younger than me. I think he's maybe three years younger than me. Um, so to watch him and his constant development is not – now people are going to say – they can say what they want. But to me, his overall success to me wasn't a surprise because he always wanted – to be great at the game. Um, and hindsight, looking back, he used to always do things. Like, as a 12-year-old, we finished working out. The first thing he would do was put ice on his knees. He literally would wrap his knees, get the ice bands, get his ice bags, and he would wrap his knees. <laughs> and I was just like, man, what you doing that for? He's like, I want to play a long time. And I was like, you're only 12. He's like, I know, but I'm playing for a lot more years for the rest of my life. And that was the first time I started seeing he was different than normal kids. Who else is in some of those Sunny Hill games with you? Oh, Rashid Wallace, um, Mr. Technical himself. <laughs> mm-hmm. My guy Rashid, uh, got him Alvin Williams, uh, played, mm-hmm. uh, played for Toronto Raptors, a few other teams. Um, a few other guys, a lot of guys came through the city that came through there, Aaron McKee, Eddie Jones, uh, Malik Rose, Rick Brunson. Um, 
you know, a lot of guys went, came to that league and went through that league their whole life. I remember that you league me went from fourth. Remember, remember, that league went from fourth grade all the way through high school, and they had a college league and pro league. So all yeah. the Philadelphia pros used to play in that league. All the college guys used to go other places, come back, used to play in the college league. So by far to me, it was the best league in the world, the country, because it had every age group. So Sheed, what was the story with Sheed and having issues with authority at that age? Listen, it was never about authority. Sheed only has that issue with people that wear black and white shirts. <laughs> she off the court. She has never gotten no off court problems. He's never been in a fight his whole life. He's never gotten bad grades in school. He's never got disciplinary actions from school. It was only it started when he came about seventeen, and when he got it, he was the first and only player to get a technical foul at a McDonald's All American game. That was the, that's when we knew she had an issue with referees. But before then and after then, he's never had any other issues anywhere in life except with referees. That's, that's the incredible. only problem he's ever had. Incredible. He didn't, he didn't give Bill Ellerby a hard time, I'm sure. No, he um, didn't give nobody a bad time. Never was bad for coaches, was always a great teammate, always a good family member. It's just him and referees got a thing going. Noah and I both from, from the area. and. When I was coming up, I mean, there was no one bigger in high school basketball than Rashid Wallace. I mean, Simon Gratz was untouchable with Red Smith and Leonard Stewart and all those guys. But but Rashid Wallace was on just another level, not just locally, nationally, but just as someone that was around her in that time and especially a fellow big. Can you just put into words just just how dominant Rashid Wallace was at that at that time? Well, let's think back. Why, why was she so popular in the Philadelphia and Tri-State area? Yes, he was a great basketball player, but he did something different that no other guy, none of us ever did before him. Rashid, so we all grew up in the Sunny Hill League, and Sunny Hill used to have strict rules about no AAU. Rashid was the first one to say, you know what, Sonny, I appreciate the league. But I need to go out and venture a play against other people and other talent because as of now, mm-hmm. I think I'm one of the best in the country. And he went and played AAU. So now he became this folklore. He became this, this mythical legend who defied the great Sonny Hill and not just playing his league, but also played AAU. And he drew so much attention. And that's where he actually got out and became a star when he started going around playing nasty. Rashid was 6'11", with like a 7'4 wingspan, had a great second jump um, and could shoot the ball. So he was he was probably one of the first stretch fours that I played against and he was he was starting to be the transition of the league. The Locked On Podcast Network stands against racism and social injustice and that's why we the hosts are making personal donations to local and national organizations that are fighting for change. And in the month of June, Locked On is matching the total of all host donations up to an additional $10,000. To make your own donation along with us, please visit LockedOnPodcasts.com slash Black Lives Matter. So with the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, we're talking cars here. It's 
it's now fairly difficult, if not impossible, to get all the parts you need in the traditional auto part chain storefront. So rockauto.com is where you should be going. It's where Adam goes since he owns a car, and it's where I've gone ever since coming into a car over the past few months since we've relocated from New York City. And Noah, Noah? Yeah? Not just that I own a car, but I own a car that's falling apart because Mike Yam, our mutual friend, sold me right. a lemon. We keep having to talk about this. That's why Rock Auto has been huge for me. Whatever makes you whatever makes you feel better, killing yam, whatever, whatever works. Chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and just folks like us who do it ourselves. But rockauto.com's prices are the same for everybody and they are always reliably low. So go to rockauto.com right now. Everything is broken down so easily. Filters, not car filters or air conditioner filters, but you can filter everything out. And so everything is so well organized. And you can see all the parts available for your car or truck. Just write locked on, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, locked on in there. How did you hear about us box so that they know we sent you? Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts you'll need for your car. Rockauto.com. All right, your high school career. So you're at Roman Catholic, a top 25 team in the country at that point. Take us back to 1992 against Dunbar, who had the longest winning streak in the country at 57 games. You go for 15. The team wins 41-37, and your team only put up 28 shots in the entire game. (laughs) Well, you know, Dunbar, one thing we had, is we had a great coach, um, like a lot of people would say. But one thing we had is we had we had good guards. Um, yeah, I was I was the best player. Um, we had another teammate back then, um, Kyle Locke, who ended up to go play Coppin State, and his son ended up his son starts for the University of Florida as a freshman. So we had a good front court, but we had guards who never turned the ball over. So you can do that pressing, you can do all that. Now remember, in '92, our starting point guard was five six. His name was Dwayne Sugar Hill. So even though he was short, he was fast. He was strong. So he wasn't making him turn the ball over. So, they, you know, Dunbar had them fast, athletic guys, wanted to speed us up. They couldn't, so they dropped back his own. We just swung, swung, swung. So we got a good shot, and we just got out of there with a win. That was a shocking game to do that to Dunbar, and we didn't think he was going to make it out of there alive. <laughs> Another guy from uh, Roman Catholic playing during during the era was Marvin Harrison. People don't remember oh, yeah. that they they remember him. If you're not from Philly, you don't realize the kind of basketball player he was. Obviously, legendary football player. What was Marvin Harrison like on the basketball court? So Marvin was so good. Let me tell you my first interaction with Marvin. We, you know, so Roman Catholic is on Broad and Vine. So Broad Street is a major street for people who don't know about Philadelphia. So we happen to have another guy named Steve Pina, who a lot of people know he's an agent. Steve Pina was an All-American track and field runner. I think he ended up going to Florida for track and field. Um, but he always said he was faster than Marv. Marv was older than Steve. So Steve came in as a freshman, and he was breaking national records as a freshman. So they said, let's race. After school... The whole school went out to Broad Street and shut down the street. 700 students stopped the traffic during rush hour on Broad Street for Steve Pina and Marvin Harrison to race. 
down the middle of Broad Street. Oh. Even though Steve Tina was breaking these records, Marvin won by a split here. Really? And that was my first time really seeing Marvin Harrison. And when you see Marvin, he's not a big guy. Marvin's a small, a small statue kind of guy. So to see Marvin, you're like, oh, he's not that good of an athlete. But when you see him playing basketball, when you see him dunking on people, then you see him catching um, uh, uh, post-pattern passes, jumping over defenders, you, you wouldn't believe that's the same person that you see walk down the street because he just didn't seem like this massive athlete. But he was big in heart, and he was big in reputation. Marvin Harris was a great athlete all around. Mark, what was day-to-day like in Philly non-basketball-wise for you? Life was hard, Noah. You know, um, you, you know my story. I grew up in a house with no heat, no running water. Um, I used to get my water from the fire hydrant at 5 o'clock in the morning before my uh, friends and neighborhood people woke up so they wouldn't know. Um, uh, and we grew up in Philadelphia. So, we, you know, in the wintertime, we had to use a kerosene heater. Um, so we had a lot of black lung. When you cough, black stuff came up out your lungs. When you cough and you sneeze, black stuff came out your nose. Um, life was hard. Uh, life was extremely hard. If I had to do it again, I would, because I think it made me the person I am today. Uh, you know, uh, when, when I take showers and baths, it was pretty much in the summertime when the local pools grew up. I mean, opened up. But I was able to go swimming. That was my version of a bath. Um, plenty of years, you know, I, I went through a lot of stuff in my life where people teased me, uh, wanting to call me Baby Yui because I was big and I stink and I was dirty. Um for me, that's how life was, and I got accustomed to it. I shouldn't have had to, but that's how it was. I grew up in a drug house where drugs were being um, used in my home uh, when days without eating um, because uh, money was spent on drugs and not necessarily on taking care of the only kid in the house. Um, and then my little brother was born, and when he was born, then I took basketball more seriously, knew I had to make a life out of this, um, and, and it, well, I would think I went to another level then as far as my training, my focus. Um, but one thing I learned from the mistakes that people made in my life was I never drank, I've never smoked, and I never will because I know how it destroyed my life growing up, destroyed my family members' lives. Um, but it also gave me an avenue of using basketball, using basketball to help get me out of the situation I was in. So I never forget what that round thing done to done for me, and how the impactful life it had for me. So that's why when I put my all into young kids, when I put my all into pros that come back and want to train with me, I'm passionate about it because I shouldn't be here. I should be a statistic. So basketball has done the world for me and for my family. You say that you you should be a statistic for for people that that don't experience a life like this how can you can you put into perspective what what you were thinking your future would hold when you were a kid growing up like that yeah well when i was growing up um i didn't believe i didn't believe i'll live to be 18 because i've witnessed so much so much trials and so much incredibly bad things um different situations. I was hanging with a group of friends and I decided to go play basketball. 
And because I didn't go hang out with those friends, those friends were killed. Um, they just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, and they were killed. This happened twice, two different times with two different group of friends um, that I was supposed to be hanging with them, just doing nothing, just walking around the street. And instead, I went to the basketball court. So because I wasn't with them at that time, I'm alive and they're not because they was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I'm blessed to be here. So another thing is that, and then I grew up in a drug house. My mother was using drug, drugs. Um, I probably would end up being a drug user. I probably end up selling drugs or being killed because I'm in a crossfire or something. Um, I didn't, um, and and that's what I mean by being a statistic. With those ways you grow up, most of the time that's the way you end up. And I just happened to go to take another path. And understanding what basketball meant so much to me, and I wanted to be good at it. So that's why I am, I am I am in the position I am, because I took life in my own hands and didn't let my circumstances dictate my outcome. At, at what age were your boys when you first told them your life story? I think my children, they got bits and pieces since they were young, young. Um, like as soon as they complain about something, oh, whoa, whoa, you can't complain about that. You know, when I was able to afford, afford some juice, when I was able to afford vegetables, you know, I gave them a story that vegetables are expensive. Junk food is cheap. So mm-hmm. you don't like the fact that I'm, I'm stuffing you for, for these vegetables. I'm making sure I watch you put in your body. It's because we're blessed to be forced to be the afford, afford to live a healthy lifestyle. I said living a healthy lifestyle is not cheap. So we're very fortunate. So I said you can never complain about you know, why am I eating so much vegetables? Why am I doing this? Because I know what's best for you, and I live a different lifestyle. So for me, they've always got bits and pieces since um, they were younger. You said that uh, it was when your brother was born that things started to change for you. When did it – how old were you when you realistically realized that, man, there is – I have a major future in, in basketball? I would say 11th grade. I would say 11th grade, I knew I could at least get a free education out of basketball. But then I realized around 11th grade, playing against guys, and I started playing against other guys that wasn't in my circle, playing against other elite talent. I knew then, I was like, oh, I got a chance here. Um, I even knew, I think it was the beginning of my left, in the summer going into 11th grade year, playing in an outdoor basketball league. Um, in Philadelphia, and I never forget this. Um, played with a, a friend of mine named Kwame Bird, and we were playing in a league. And Kwame was it was the end of the game. We down by one, and my friend Kwame went to go to the basket to, to catch the end of the game, and he got stripped. The ball just happened to bounce to me. I pick up the ball, and I go up. I just jump straight up. And I dunked the ball on a guy and broke the court to win the game <laughs> on this guy in the inner city league of Philadelphia. Here it is, inner city league of Philadelphia. And when I did that, I broke the court, and this guy, the crowd was going crazy. And this guy got so bad at me. Mind you, we playing up, we playing against older guys, like older guys. So this guy was so mad at me. This guy said, "I'm gonna kill you," and he ran to his car to go get a gun. And I looked at the guy who runs the league, the lady who ran the league, and she told me, boy, run. And I ran 
from there all the way home while this guy was shooting at me. What? And, what? Uh, yeah, true story. And I, I, re, I ran home. And this guy was shooting at me because he got dunked on. And then I knew that this game of basketball was more than just a game when somebody would take it that personal. Um, but then that's when I realized the game of basketball is more than just a game. And then going to my 11th grade year, I started taking basketball as more than a game. And then that's when I started playing against different guys, started getting more skilled, and I realized, like, hey, I might get a future in this. So that's how it all started. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, that's how it all started, but that's also how it almost all ended. Exactly. Exactly. So Man. that's another situation. How basketball has put me in a situation and saved my life a bunch of times. And also a situation where it was scary, where one time I almost lost my life. Adam, let's talk about Built Bar. Yes. And I had the coconut almond the other day, and boy, was it tasty. And it was straight out, of, straight out of the fridge. That's my, that's my move now, taking them right out of the fridge. 16 amazing flavors, Built Bar. Eight chocolate nut flavors, eight chocolate nut-free flavors. The bars are covered in 100% chocolate. So, yeah, mm. it's going to make you think that Wait a second. I just worked out. So why am I eating this candy bar? Well, it just tastes like a candy bar, but there's about the amount of sugar. There's probably less there's less sugar in it than certainly a Cliff bar, but probably the cereal that you had for breakfast. Oh, easy. So so for example, the peanut butter brownie, 20 grams of protein, 170 calories, three grams of sugar, three grams net carbs. Uh, no brainer. Builtbar.com. They are tasty, beyond tasty. Builtbar.com, promo code locked on. You'll get $10 off your first order. Promo code locked on, $10 off at builtbar.com. I, I don't want to spend too much wow. on, on college, but you started at VCU before going to Temple. Was the decision to go to VCU related to, I got to get out of Philadelphia? Absolutely. My motto, so my last five schools was Pitt, UMass, VCU, Florida State, Boston College. Oh. I really, really, I really wanted to go to Pitt. I did not want to go to UMass. When I went for my visit at UMass, I just didn't get a good vibe like they really wanted me. Um, uh, like they really wanted me, so I kind of backed off of that. I really wanted to go to Pitt bad. So I, was, I waited to sign my letter of intent. But um, when I was – I went to play in a Dapper Dan All-American game. Mm-hmm. And I went to play in a Dapper Dan All-American game. It's at Pittsburgh in the old igloo. So once there – once I'm there, the – check this out. They introduce all the coaches in the gym. It's All-American game. So it's every Division One coach in the country there. They, 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 they announced um, – uh, it was Paul, what's his name? He was the pit coach back then. I can't remember his name. He was coach David Robinson at the Naval Academy. Well, and they introduced him, and the whole arena booed him. I was like, um, yeah, I can't come here. And that's the only reason why I didn't go to pit. Paul Evans. And, and, Paul Evans. and what's wild is, and, and it's funny you saying that, Mark, because at the time, I mean, we're talking about a guy who had had so much success and recruited a ton of great play Sean Miller and Brian Shorter and Jerome Lane and all those guys. That's wild for you to say that the crowd was against him 
it tells you where the program was at that at that point under his uh, his regime. Yeah, they booed him. That's the only reason. So uh, that left the other schools: Florida State, Boston College, UMass, VCU. Um, VCU just seemed like a place where I could have played immediately. So that's why I overall chose VCU over the other schools. You end up end up back at at Temple. There's there's a there's a game I want to focus on in '95. Okay. Your th- your 31 and 12 performance against number one Kansas when the team itself wasn't playing that well, but you had just beaten a week before you had just beaten Villanova, who was number two in the country. And I think mm-hmm. you guys only had three wins and you're a sub 500 team. So at the Meadowlands that night around Christmas time, 1995 against Scott Pollard and Rafe LaFrance. When you think about that game, what do you still remember? I still remember the good game because that was probably one of the few times that year that I played against a team that has a, had a front court just as big as us mm. um, because we had a big front court. We were a big team because a lot of people don't remember notice we only had one true guard on the team. We had one true guard. Everybody else was power forwards being transitioned into small forwards or power forwards. So we had one guard on the team. So we was huge. So for us to play there, we played against uh, uh, Ray for friends, Scott Pollard. To me, that was the only other team we played against that year that a front line bigger than us or about the same. And I feel as though I handled them guys with ease. Um, and there's no disrespect to those guys, but I really thought I was having a hell of a run that game. And it was interesting because my team is like, Jack, don't worry about nothing. Just keep getting those buckets. We'll mm-hmm. take care of everything else. So it was pretty cool to be in that environment, to be in that, the coaches for cancer um, environment, and to be able to put in that work versus those guys. All right, so in 1997, you win Atlantic 10 Player of the Year, your dominant big man, and here comes the NBA draft. I mean, you're you're a big guy with a talented skill set. Uh, obviously, you you you're competitive. All these things. What are your expectations on draft night? Well, during that, even my decision to come out early was because of need. My family needed some financial support. My mother was in and out of rehab. My little brother was an infant then. We needed some help. So I decided to come out to support my family. Coach Cheney was all for it. Um, when I came out, I felt it would be a high pick. But the first workout first uh, at, for the Atlanta Hawks, when I'm training for the Atlanta Hawks, ironically against Scott Pollard again, and we hit hmm. knees. And I got a contusion on my knee. And I was unable to, to work the workout for like a month, pretty much the whole time leading up to the draft. So my stock fell. Prior to that, I had got invited to the green room. But maybe a week before, maybe about five days before the draft, they had notified me, like, look, you can still come to the green room, but we'll let you know that your stock, you might not go in the lottery. You might not go in the first round. You still want to come. I said, no, I just spend that time at home with my family. So that's what I did. I stayed home with my family, my media family, my godparents. Um, we stayed at the house, but I told my agent at that time, I said, I want to go to the highest bidder. For me, it wasn't about the NBA. It was about earning a good living for my family. So if I was going to drop to the second round, which at that time, the contract was $249,000. But I told my agent, I want to go to the highest bidder. So if you give me something for Europe or more, I'll go. 
So when John Thompson was taken, John Thomas, when you were in Minnesota, was taken with the last pick in the first round to the New York Knicks. By then, I had eight EuroLeague teams bid, having a bidding war for me. A couple of teams were Barcelona, Madrid, Milan, uh, Cheska, Moscow, Maccabi, Tel Aviv, um, the team Tolfas, another team from Turkey, Ephes Pilsen. And before my name was picked in the second round, I had signed a deal to go to Turkey to play for a team in the Euro Cup called Tobosa Tofash, which gave me the highest contract ever for a player that never played a game in the NBA. And to make it even sweeter, I had got 70% of my money up front before mm-hmm. I stepped on a plane to ever go there. <laughs> what, what did they give so you? So when I was fucked. Uh, I can't tell you that, but I would say it was it was more than it was more than the thirteenth pick selected in the first round in one year. Did you know did you know what to expect life wise over there? <laughs> no, I didn't. And I was very open minded. So I, you know, I, my grandfather was there with me at the time and my grandfather had fought in two wars and he always told me like it's gonna be a great experience if you go to open mindset. So I went with an open mindset. So when I went there, I went and it was it was when I got off the plane, because of the contract I signed, when I got off that airplane, it was on a runway. I would say it had to be 500 media members from all over Europe there. But what was interesting, that is not what caught my eye. What caught my eye is that the the, the military. So they didn't. Their police. Every police officer here has handguns. Over there, they had, like, assault rifles. Their police had assault rifles. So when I got off the plane, I'm looking like, is this the military? Like, no, this is the local police. I'm like, oh, wow, really? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, so that's the first thing that caught my eye. But it was a great experience. I wouldn't give it up for the world. Outstanding experience and good overall development for my mind has developed me into a man. How did your game change playing in in Turkey and, and then eventually Spain? It made me more versatile. For me playing in Turkey and Spain, it made me a lot more versatile because I had to, we played more of a European basketball concept. It wasn't no more, okay, you're the center, you're the power forward. It wasn't no more of that. We run a continuous pick and roll set. This is what we do. This is how we do it. Um, and we did that. So we continued to do that, and it learned me to play more the perimeter, to be not just a pick and pop guy, to be able to handle the ball, to be able to break guys down off the dribble, there were things like that, how to guard guards. That was a huge thing um, then because a lot of our defense was switching on the perimeter. So it made me more mobile and more of a complete player on both ends of the floor. All right, so when you then end up in the NBA and you become all-NBA first-team all-rookie in 2001, Golden State Warriors, you spent a year and a half there. How did how did they come to the conclusion that Danny Fortson and Adana Foil were more worthwhile to keep than you? Well, no, think about this. So when we were there, I would still remember, so the rules were, no matter how many years I played in Europe, Golden State still on my rights. Mm-hmm. So I played, um, I played three years in the NBA, I mean Europe, and then when I finally went to the NBA, they still on my rights. So I had to go back there. So I'll never forget this. During camp, I'm playing outstanding in camp. I'm playing outstanding in 
the training camp, stuff like that, preseason games. The first game coming to regular season, I don't play a minute. I'm like, that's hmm. interesting. Don't play one minute, zero. A bunch of DMPs. So uh, I just can't believe that. So I never forget this. The assistant coach said, you messed – I don't want to say exactly what he said. He said, you effed everything up. And I'm like, what do you mean? He said, we're about to go on this big meeting because of you. You effed everything up. I'm like, And he he said it with a sense of jokingly, but he was serious, but he was had a smirk on his face. So I still don't know to this day what he meant by that. All I know is I, he left me blind. But for that, I still didn't play. I still didn't get no minutes for like 20 games. Then I'll never forget this. It was like they just start the pieces just start dropping. The players just start dropping. And I think maybe in two weeks, we might have lost Danny Fortin, Donald Foyle, Eric Dampier, Adam Keefe, and I think somebody else in, in like maybe like five days. So then I went from playing no minutes to starting. And then that's when everybody came back, and that's when the contrary started. Well, and they had just signed Eric Dampier to like $50 million. Danny mm. Ford's like $40 million. Um, uh, Donald Ford like $30 million. And it was like, well, all I know is Mark Jackson's our starting center, and that's how it's going to be. So, like, it, it, it created something in a locker room, not just a locker room, it created something – with the media starting controversy in the locker room because these guys, this guy on this non-guaranteed league minimum is playing more minutes and doing playing better than you guys who just signed these big deals. So it was a bunch of stuff going on. <laughs> all right. So then, so then how did it all play out where you ended up getting dealt to Minnesota? So I ended up that, that year. So it became interesting. So this is where being young, and not having a good mentor comes into play. So I'm not going to mention his name, but it was a beat writer for the Golden State Warriors. During the summer, negotiations are going, negotiations are going on. So during the summer, there's one beat writer calling me, not my agent. He's calling me, telling me, man, David Collins said he don't want you. Man, David Collins said you won't fit on what he's trying to do. David Collins saying this. So I'm just like, uh, okay, no problem. So then he finally got me to bite. And I said, well, if he don't want me there, I don't want to be there. All I know is on the front of the paper, it said Mark Jack said he don't want to be here no more. So when I finally signed with the Houston Rockets, Gary St. Jean had told me, Mark, um, I'm going to let you go there. We're not going to match you. You can stay with Houston. I was like, all right, bet, cool. I'm looking at houses. I'm about to rent an apartment or rent something or whatever. All I know is they matched the offer with 15 minutes left. Ugh. They matched the offer. The Houston Rockets general manager at the time, I can't remember who it was, called me more ticked off than I was. I was like, Mark, you would never believe this. They matched the offer. So he was very irate, so like I was. So when they brought me, so make a long story short, they brought me back. He said, Mark, I know I told you that, but we don't want to lose you for nothing. We're going to keep you here just to trade you for something. I said, all right, no problem. But remember, 
I had to agree to who they traded me to. They had the no trade clause. So I mm-hmm. had to agree to who they traded me to. So they trying to trade me to every team under the sun. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. It has to be a good deal for me too. So mind you, because of what the beat writer had put in the media and the papers that summer during the off season, the people of Golden State hate my guts. The fans hate my guts. Employees are treating me different at Golden State. Mm. Because this meteorite took what I said out of context and stirred up some trash and got people thinking that I just said I don't want to be there. So mind you, I go out to eat with my family. Not my, I'm not married to them, but I go out to eat at a restaurant. I got people sending me notes, sending me death threats. What? Because of this media member who started all this turmoil. So now there's all this turmoil going on. So... So now they're like, even if they wanted to keep me, it's in everybody's best interest that they trade me. So I finally agreed to a trade to Minnesota, and that's how I get dealt to Minnesota for Dean and the second-round pick or something. Yeah, Dean Garrett. And what's crazy, what's crazy too, is they fired Dave Cowens that year anyway. What a disaster the Warriors were at that time to think about that. They load up on bigs. They match the offer to keep you. They bring in... Jason Richardson, Gilbert Arenas, another big, and Troy Murphy as rookies. But then, but then this coach that you have this controversial issue with, they fire him anyway. Oh, no, 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 like, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. Let me correct that. Let me correct that. I didn't have no controversy with him. Oh, I know. I got, no, it was never what they called. It was just the organization. But him, he was the only one that I didn't have no, he, he didn't have no beef with me. Because mm. I told him, I said, Coach, you said you didn't want me. like, what the hell are you talking about? I want you. I said, the such just told me and said, you didn't want me. And I said, and he said, that's, and you know, David Cowan is a tough dude. He's yeah. like, that. he said, what? I said, that's what he told me. So he called Gary St. Jean down there and told him what was being said and why did I say that? And I told him the whole context of what I said. So, but by then, it was so much negativity from the city at that point because this B-Rider had started all this drama. So, yeah, it was problems amongst the office, but it was never problems with me and the coaches. It was just with now the, 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 the not just the coaches, but the other staff members, ticket sales, PR people. They were, like, looking at me like I was some kind of bad guy, and along with the fans of the team, like, sending me death threats. So, like, you know what I mean? So, like, the, oh, yeah, so that was sure. a bad ran organization at that time. Yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine, too, how much it slayed you because you're such a good guy at heart and to have people feel that way when it's not anything you did. I was laughing at the fact that it's like here everyone's making a big deal about who you are based upon your relationship that they perceive with the coach, and they end up getting rid of both of you guys anyway. So it's uh, it's remarkable. Well, it's funny. I found two quotes about that whole experience for you. First, when Houston – so when you go to Minnesota – Rudy Tomjanovich, the Rockets coach at the time, says, this kills me, kills me, kills me. So he was devastated that they didn't end up with you. And then Wally Zerbiak is so pumped. He says, he's got a big body. I come off his screens and I get a clear look at the basket. That's a nice luxury to have. He's not built for a bunch of clowns like they have in Golden State. He's more of a guy (laughs) who needs to play with players who know how to play. He makes them better and we make him better. So how great was the chemistry, especially in comparison to Golden State? How great was the chemistry in Minnesota with KG and those guys? 
Hold on, hold on. Let's rewind that. I've never heard that quote by Wally. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Yes. He Whoa. called your old teammates a bunch of clowns. Yo. Well, Wally, and that's funny. So that's why I mean Wally got hit it off so good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Wally's my guy. I love Wally. But you know what's funny about that is Minnesota was a family. Like, it was a family. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, correct me, guys. Fact check me. But if I'm not mistaken, I believe Flip Saunders was the youngest coach in the NBA then, if I'm not mistaken. Like, the guys hung together. We ate dinner together. And it wasn't like it wasn't like it was a bunch of young guys. No, 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 no. It was young guys. We had myself. We had KG, Felipe Lopez, Lauren Woods. We had veterans, uh, Terrell Brandon, uh, Sam Mitchell. Um, we had got Ryan Strickland later. Like, we had – it was a good mixture, but it was a family atmosphere that just wanted to win. And I think that kind of environment was brought in because of how Flip Signers was so good for everyone. Flip Saunders was such a good dude that he created that atmosphere. Him, I remember Kevin McHale was the general manager. Mm-hmm. So they ran that team like a team, but more of a family atmosphere. So everybody hit it off good because everybody had one mission, and that was the win. All right, so then speaking of winning, you go up 2-1 in the first round of the 3 playoffs against the Lakers, and you're battling Shaq, who – I know you've said that's that has always been your your toughest guard. What happened after you went up two one? We went up two one, man, and then the, they just became who they are. They are what you think they are. <laughs> yeah. That's when, um, Kobe just started getting his rhythm. Um, Shaq started doing his thing. But what I think was more interesting is, and I'll be honest, they made adjustments that we didn't. I remember like it was yesterday, certain way we was doing pick and rolls with Shaq. They threw this little nuance that we would rotate with the guard and then they scramble out of it. Um, the way we defend the Shaq. So you fronted them. That's fine. Of course, they had the hollow thing. But um, they would create, they created a little wrinkle where instead of flashing the big to the top of the key, they would flash it behind the defense to the dunk position. It was like a little twerky adjustment that was hard to adjust to. So their adjustment took us by surprise and we never recovered from it. When when you go on to Philly after Minnesota, what what was it like emotionally to be back in Philadelphia as a success? It was great because you know a lot of people a lot of people start playing basketball because they see the superstars in a no local town. But for me, the first person I remember hearing that really caught my eyes when I heard this sound. Mark Averoni. <laughs> they always named Mark. And that's all that rest is history from then. So for me, uh for me, hearing Mark Averoni that was the first remembrance I've had of seventy sixers basketball. So for me to wear seventy sixers uniform was a dream come true. And a lot of guys have said, but it was truly a dream. Cause think about how I grew up. Think about what I went through. Now I have a chance to wear an NBA uniform for the city and town I grew up in. Had so much hardship. Now I'm coming back totally different, revamped, and a better person and more financially stable. It's incredible. And in addition to all those things, you get a chance to play with AI. So, yes, sir. Uh, 
always fascinated for someone that's side by side and battling with the guy. What's what's something about Allen Iverson that um, that will always stick out to you? I, people know how tough AI was, but I, I really believe pound for pound, Allen Iverson is the toughest person, me, the big, the baddest dude to ever play in NBA basketball game. Pound for pound, AI was about six feet. Really, he was about five eleven, five ten and a half. He was no more than 160 pounds. No more than 160 pounds. None. Couldn't be. <laughs> so I remember so many times that AI would go to the basket, guys, and I would just meet him in the air, and he would just hit the ground so hard. Would make everybody stop like, yeah, he done broke something. And he would get up and just keep playing. Do it again. Boom, pow, hit the ground. Get up and keep playing like, yo, hey, man, like, yeah, stop coming to the basket, man. He, he's like, come on, Jack, just keep hitting me. I'm all right. Like, it, it was – he just was the toughest dude. His heart was big. It was huge. You couldn't you couldn't defend him because he was so quick. Um, he was so laterally quick. You couldn't stop him because he might make, you might make a miss five shots in a row, but because he was a volume scorer, he's about to shoot the next 20 more shots. So, so <laughs> couldn't stop. he's always going to end up with his numbers. But he he lived he lived the game with his on his sleeve. You knew how he felt on his sleeve. He was emotionally attached to the game. He lived it. It was all he wanted to do. Mark Rex Walters was on with us a few weeks ago, and he said that he remembers like all the time. Thirty minutes before a game, AI would be in the family room eating with his hair half in braids while his mom was like still working on the other half in a tank top and his Sixers, not, not a, not a uniform, but a tank top in his Sixers shorts. And he would always just say, Rex would say, yeah, Alan, we got to go. We got to go. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there in a minute. I'll be there in a minute. Did you ever, did you ever think that like Alan just wasn't going to show up? I never thought he wasn't going to show up, but he's say figuring instead of being in a locker room with you guys, because you know how you get your shots. Then if you get your shots, you go back in. You sit in there for an hour, stretch, talk, do whatever, looking at them, waiting for the coaches to come out. So instead, he was just going to the family room, eat chicken wings. He used to eat just chicken wings to get his hair braided. Chicken wings, that's all he used to eat. Like, he just eat it, eat chicken wings, get his hair braided. And I, and I never rem- I never forget, Aaron McKee, my good friend Aaron, used to always tell him, like, one day you're going to poop in your pants, and I'm going to laugh so hard. Because if he eat chicken wings, wash his hands, put his uniform on, and go play. He never was he never was big and stretching, warming up. Like, man, that's just play. And he I like do airs like one day you're gonna poop your pants so bad and I'm gonna laugh at you. Because you never jump right before you play. It never happened. Never happened. <laughs> that you know of. That you know of. Uh- exactly. You always say, man, my stomach hurts. And we used to just laugh. He's <laughs> like, one day it's gonna happen. Mark, I, I'm curious now, being a member of the media post-career and in Philadelphia and understanding, too, that you played with AI. When I was at Comcast, I remember the biggest thing in the world was guys would try to set up interviews with Iverson. They would go try to go down to different events he would have and and charity events and things down in Virginia. And the hardest thing in the world was to get Iverson to show up somewhere, to get him to show up on time to have him just be a part of that. Cause it's not something he seemed to like care for. So I guess my question is as a, 
Like, what's the secret to what makes him tick in in the offseason when he's not when he's not playing ball? What makes AI tick? So he never had a set schedule in the summer. So when AI worked out in the summertime, whatever time he woke up, he would just go to a basketball court. Whatever he was wearing, he would brush his teeth, get in his car, drive the basketball court, and get some shots, play five on five. That's all he wanted to do. That's all, every time, like and he never had a set schedule. Never. We're like, yo, hey, we playing hey, out. We playing at eleven thirty. I'm through. We're like, all right, he'll show up twelve o'clock, show up twelve thirty. That's what he did. He just never had a set schedule. But he always get his runs in. He always do his thing. But he wasn't he wasn't big in the weight room, did not like the weight room at all. Um, he just wanted to play five on five. And he's never he was just a free bird. He was a free bird. Just wanted to be free, do life as he wanted his schedule. Um, but he always gave his heart and his soul. And I'll never forget that about him. And even now, even now, we're ambassadors for the Sixers. So we all both have we show up to different events as alumni, take some pictures, sign some autographs. He'll be so it's funny watching him now. He's always early for those though. And that'd be crazy, like, oh really? Like really now you're early? Like really? He's always early. I'll be like, dude, we're supposed to be there from three to the game started at seven. We're supposed to be up in this this um this room with these with certain people from like five to six. He's there at four thirty. Let's be fair here. Someone probably told him the event started at one. <laughs> no, I just think and he has a lot, and be honest, he has a he he knows how he was perceived to everyone, and he takes he wears his heart on the sleeve, and I think he's trying to correct how people mm. viewed him when he playing. I think now with the events he does and stuff like that, now he tries to correct to kind of to re revamp his image that we people have when he plays. All right, let's close with a few just unrelated questions, and let's start with. Team Jacko, the AAU program. What are you teaching your kids? And I can I can really only imagine what it is just knowing you as I do. But but let folks know what you're teaching your kids and the ages of your players that they can't get anywhere else. So I'm a big believer in AAU is not for everyone. But if you choose to do AAU, you have to really believe and the people that you're trusting in with your child. Meaning, you can't trust in your, your as a parent, trust to be somewhere, put your child in a program, but then tell your parent, don't your child, you can't listen to the coach, do what I say. With my program, I'm an old school kind of coach. I'm tough. I'm not these kind of coaches. A lot of coaches are scared to coach kids the way they really need to be coached. They scared to teach kids like they really need to be taught because you know nowadays kids are quick to jump and quit. Mm-hmm. So uh, kids, coaches don't really coach kids and tell them if they made a mistake because they say little Johnny may be mad and quit my team and go somewhere else. But for me, my thing is I don't need your child. You need me. So when you come to my program, if your child is so having to be blessed to wear my uniform, we teaching. We're teaching no entitlement, hold yourself accountable and your teammates accountable, and we will hold you the same. So we teach you something, we expect something, and you never can deviate from that. Our our kids go as young as eight years old, all the way up to 14 years old, 15, 14 or 15. 
We have a no, no, a policy we don't accept nothing, which means you can't come and be a part of our team and be that parent that's yelling at referees or telling little Billy, oh, little Billy, you don't listen to them do this. As soon as that happens, we call a timeout, we tell your child good luck, and we cut them right there on the court. Because if you're going to spend some time for your child to play for me and think you're going to have play for me, but you're going to tell them what to do, that's a problem. You need to coach your child if that's the situation. So for what they get from us or they can't get from nowhere else, they get real teaching, real coaching, and they're not being afraid to tell your child you're wrong. This is the correct way to do things and not give in to kids. Too many AAU programs give in to kids, give in to parents because they want the best players because they feel so we get these best player, players, then we'll be recognized and maybe we might get more money from shoe, shoe companies. That's not my philosophy. I don't give a darn about no shoe company. That's our philosophy and that's the way we run it. Mark, um, so many great players we mentioned earlier come out of Roman Catholic. Didn't even mention Donnie Carr, Larry Kettner, Eddie Griffin, all those guys. Um, you had such a, so, uh, well, that was going to be my question actually to you. You had that opportunity when you go to the Hornets to play with Rasul Butler. So here's two Roman Catholic kids now playing on the same NBA team. How did you share in, in that experience and just sitting there looking at each other like, wow. You know, what's interesting about that. Yes. We were blessed to wear the Roman Catholic uniform as well as the wearing the, 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 the Hornets uniform, but both of us grew up very similar. There was plenty of days I would go over Rasu's house or Rasu would come on my house, and we just sitting there watching TV just talking like, man, you believe this? You believe our bank accounts? You believe we're <laughs> able to do for our family? You believe this, how we grew up? It, it was hard. To, sometimes it's like, yeah, the pinch me is not real. But Rasul understood that and we both understood at that point, you can you think you're as good as you could be, but once you show these teams all you got to show them, when you get to a team, you have to fulfill a role. And then once you fulfill that role, you have to be willing to be the best at that role that you can be. And that's what we both understood during that time, and we both strive to try to do that and to be that for the teams we were on. It was great to be teammates with Rasul, not just being teammates with him, but to also being a good friend of Rasul. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, another teammate of yours that we didn't get a chance to ask about, what's your best Kevin Garnett story? Oh, man. So <laughs> everybody knows Kevin Garnett talks trash, right? We all know that, right? Oh, mm-hmm. yes. What people don't understand is how he talks trash. I'm a big trash talker. When I talk trash, I'm looking at you. I'm talking to you. Kevin was different. Kevin never looked at you and talked to you directly. Kevin talked in third person. So, for example, <laughs> for example, Kevin, like, so me and Kevin, we, and we used to battle in practice, talking trash. Yeah, you ain't nothing to do you. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do you, Kevin. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to give me that ball. I'm going to do you. And instead of Kevin, like, yeah, Mark, I'm going to do you. Kevin, like, this This is what you're going to do, Kev. You know that guy, Mark? You're going to get it. You're going to up and under. You're going to, you're going to dunk in his head. And you're going to go woof, woof, woof. And you're going to stare at him like, dude, you know, I'm standing right here. You, I can hear you, right? Like, and he would never answer you directly. He would talk in third person when he's talking trash to you. 
But, like, it was like, yeah, it was, you won't do that guy, Mark. He can't mess with Kevin Garnett. He don't know who I am. He don't know who I am. So we're going to get We're going to spin move. We're going to dunk. We're going to hang on the rim. We're going to scream. Like, are you talking to me, Kevin? Like, <laughs> like he, he just talked to third person. <laughs> Kevin was hilarious. You know, he was hilarious. And that intensity you see, that's not a game. That's not a facade. That's really Kevin in all aspects of life. That intensity, when he orders a, a coffee for the like, yeah, make it a coffee, two creams, three sugars, make it hot, make it creamy. Like, that's Kevin. Kevin's really that intense. <laughs> oh, uh, Mark, we, we did a game together years ago at Tuskegee. And yes. I remember I had flight delays, and then I ended up having to get a car, to, to rent a car, and actually unrelated i my life driver's license had expired and somehow i still rented a car from avis in atlanta and drove to tuskegee but i remember you <laughs> i i remember you driving and us texting throughout since it was late and we had a game early the next day and yeah, I mean, and I was worried about you because it was like one, two o'clock in the morning as you were driving from, I don't know, maybe you were driving from Atlanta. And you said at one point, it was like one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, you pulled over to the side of the road and did some push-ups to like get yeah. some, to get some energy. I just yeah. started thinking, I never forgot that story, but I just started thinking about that again over the past few weeks, given everything that's been going on in our country. Were you scared when you did that? You know what? Then I was not because I, I didn't think about it then. But then when I got to Tuskegee and realized where I was and how different it was from where I grew up and what goes what still goes on there um, with the, the, the systematic racism and the way things people are treated that don't look a certain way, when I got there, I was like, oh, man, that was – oh, that could have that went bad. Let's just say that. It could have went bad. Um, so for me, uh, that could have went bad. Fortunately, it didn't. But, you know, it's something that I have to deal with a lot, um, especially driving through those rural areas. A lot of people have to deal with that. And what's going on now, you know, I think the last four years, I think things like that have got amplified. But people think they can come out and just be openly racist, do openly do things. Mm-hmm. And don't feel as though it should be no reprimand for that. So now instead of people hiding, they actually, as we say, they're taking their hoods off and showing you who they are because they feel as though they're protected because there are a few other people like that as well. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I know my conversations with, with Eden, my daughter, are much different than the conversations that you have with your boys. What are your conversations about those situations like with your kids? So my wife, um, I, no, I don't know if you remember this. My wife wasn't born in America. Right. My wife is from Casablanca, Morocco. Mm-hmm. So she's Moroccan. So I'll never forget my son Sharif now, who just turned 14. My son Sharif is all of about 6'6", six, six, 200 pounds. He looks like a grown man. But he's an avid reader. He's incredibly intelligent. He is very intelligent. But when you see him, you think he's a man. So when my son was 12 years old is when I first had to talk with him about how he should be an act when he gets pulled over by the police. 
And when I'm saying certain stuff to him, my wife is not agreeing. Oh, he should have to put his hands on the steering wheel. Oh, why he got to have his hands up? Oh, why can't mm-hmm. like, can he just wait for the cop to action? I say because he's black. And because he's a large human being. So he's already, some white police officers see him as a threat because he's black. Now he has massive size to go with it. So he's seen as more of extreme threat because of his size. So I said, no matter what, no matter we want to prove a point, or we want to hold our ground or fight for our right, I want to make sure my son comes home from getting stopped by police. And if police act inappropriately, we'll sue that police officer and that whole unit. But I want to make sure my son does not give the police officer, and not all police are like this. So let me just testify saying that. But some of them are. Mm-hmm. But I want to make sure that my son lives to come home after getting stopped by the police. And then I can ask him what happened. If we need to proceed to sue, then we'll do that. But I don't want to give no bad cop a reason to put a bullet in my son that he's no longer with us no more. But what's interesting about that, people say, I agree, is not all cops are bad. Because I have a lot of good friends that are police officers. But I tell them, not all y'all bad, but not enough of you good ones are standing up and taking out the bad ones and calling them out on what they do. Right. So that's the conversation that I have to have with my children. All right, Mark, let's close on hoops. It's the Rejecting the Screen podcast. So we always ask our guests about the guy that they would choose. And there's always a stipulation at the end. The guy that they would choose to have the ball in their hands, game seven, need a bucket. Who are you choosing to reject the screen, go ISO and get that bucket? And like the guys used to play on the bus, they would say, well, and you can't choose Jordan. In your case, let's put the stipulation on it. Let's say from the guys from Philly, who would you choose to reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket? Colby. That was quick. I mean, that was, that was, no, that was a no-brainer. Would you, would you have chosen, no-brainer. I mean, you probably would have chosen Kobe at age 12 to get that bucket, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. When I knew how different he was, I would have chosen him then. Um, I, absolutely Kobe Bryant. He was defiant, which means defiant meaning I'm not going to do what you say by trying to fit in. I'm going to make sure everybody fits in around me. And if it requires that I got to get this shot off to win this game, then so be it. I'm going to get this shot off to win this game. But we're going to go out swinging. And Kobe Brown, we're going to go out direct, direct the screen, Kobe Bryant and ISO. All right, he's Mark Jackson. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. And, Mark, I, I've appreciated okay. our friendship for, for a number of years, and we appreciate your time today. Appreciate you guys. I'm always there for you. Good talking to you, and good job asking the tough questions. I like someone. <laughs> uh, Mark, it, it, was, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much, man. So I used to call games with Mark on CBS Sports Network. We did a package of games together years ago, and it was a lot of – a lot of D2 games. So we're in all sorts of small towns. And one of them was at Tuskegee. I think that, I don't know if that was our first game together, but we're doing the game there. And, and we, you heard the story about it being that late at night. And mm-hmm. I mean, I remember pulling in there and for the last like half hour, there were no lights anywhere. And I remember going to the arena the next day and you could feel the history of the airmen being there. Go to the arena the next day, and 
There's no rosters. That guy didn't have a pencil. There's no there's no computer. I found out during the first time out that that there are guys wearing different uniforms and so and so is no longer on the team. It was chaotic. It was chaotic. But I do remember being in the elevator that morning coming coming back from breakfast and I asked Mark, can I put on your jacket? And I put on his jacket, his suit jacket. And I looked and I said, I, my entire family could fit in this jacket. It, like in the, the sleeve of the jacket. He is <laughs> as, as gentle of a giant as there is. But I think his recall of certain events, and you can feel the intensity and the chip mm-hmm. that's still on his shoulder. There's so many things that I appreciate about Mark Jackson. I'm so glad that so many got to hear it today. Absolutely. Uh, I I think back and he was one of the iconic names that was coming up in, in the Philadelphia area in the uh, early nineties to early to mid nineties, I should say this, this heyday of, of city hoops in, in the Catholic league and the public league. And certainly I named some of the guys from Roman Catholic, but what Rashid Wallace was doing, but Mark Jackson, when he got a chance you know, didn't get a chance to show his stuff at VCU when he came back to Philly, goes to Temple, and then ends up playing for the Sixers. I mean, you want to talk about the ultimate, like, Philly guy. There might not be a more Philly basketball guy who's, who's, yeah. who, who's experienced that at all the levels. The Philly high school hoop scene is just different. The, the college scene, as we know, Big Five, it's just different. And then, of course, the Sixers. So a guy that had a chance to uh, – you know, be a part of all that. It was pretty cool talking to Mark Jackson. I mean, to come back with a big bank account, be a mm. successful NBA player, to come back to Philadelphia, where as a kid, you're getting your water from a fire hydrant outside at 5 a.m. So your neighbors didn't know that you didn't have running water. If that doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what will. He said he, he, said he didn't think he'd live past 18. We talk about hope all the time, and, and it's the greatest gift you can have. And you think about the opportunities that my kids are going to have, that your kid has, and, and the hope that they have for their future. They can be anything they want to be, right? We tell them, you work at it, you can be anything you want to be. And this guy's thinking, man, I just hope I, I can live past 18. I mean, to, to then come back and be a member of the pro team in that city, like you said, goosebumps, man. Right, so go back and listen to all the episodes of the Going ISO edition of Rejecting the Screen, mostly evergreen over the past number of months, ever since we started this, all the way back in October with Ryan Russillo going through Peter Vesey and Rex Walters, who we mentioned, Sam Mitchell, who was a teammate of Mark's in Minnesota. We had Sam on as well, Richard Jefferson, and so many others. So go back and subscribe to Rejecting the Screen wherever you get your podcasts and enjoy all the Going ISO editions, which come out every week, along with the two of us talking hoops and a little bit of life every Tuesday on the feed. Everything else on the Locked On Podcast Network, Chad Ford's NBA Big Board, all things NBA Draft, Hollinger and Duncan, John Hollinger, Nate Duncan on Mondays. Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd, Locked On NBA, the national program, five days a week and your team every day here on the Locked On Podcast Network. 
The program's on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Adam's on Twitter at NaismithLives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.